You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. Our reading this morning is from Hebrews 5, beginning in verse 7. I'll be reading first in German and second in English. We do this occasionally so that we are reminded of our global faith. It's a glimpse into eternity when people from every tribe, tongue, and nation will be gathered around God's throne, worshiping him together. Und er hat den Tag und er hat in den Tagen seines irdischen Lebens Bitten und Flehen mit lauten Schreien und mit Tränen vor den gebracht, der ihn aus dem Tod erretten konnte. Und er ist erhört worden, weil er Gott in Ehren hielt. So hat er, obwohl er der Sohn war, doch an dem, was er litt, gehorsam gelernt. Und da er vollendet war, ist er für alle, die ihm gehorsam sind, der Urheber der ewigen Seligkeit geworden, von Gott genannt, ein hoher Priester nach der Ordnung Melchizedeks. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. This is the word of the Lord. Well, before pastoral ministry, I was a project manager and an estimator in the family business. Despite being a part of the family, I couldn't just assume a privileged role. I had to be appointed. I had to be qualified. I had to be tested for this position. So on one hand, I had the office of a son, literally and figuratively. I had the office of a son, but I had to have the experience of an employee. So I did. I was in the rotation for servicing the forklift and the grease and the battery acid and burning my hands. And I would sweep the warehouse and I would clean out the, ma the mouse traps, which still just gives me the shivers doing. Uh, I pick up deliveries. I would go to the job site and help carry materials. I would clean out and empty trailers full of trash and I would tear down cardboard. I had to learn the business that I would help manage from the ground up. And among many of the, the benefits of this process, one of the clearest was the solidarity that it created between myself and the crews that I would manage. So that there would be a sense of like, um, okay, he gets us. He gets it. And so through experience, through bloods, sweat and tears, I came to know the struggles and to know the pains and to know the restrictions and to know just the strange variables that cannot be determined from the comfort of a desk in the office, that you only learn through experience. Now, every illustration eventually breaks down, as does this one, because Hebrews is talking about the perfect son, Jesus Christ, and I am far from that flawed individual, but I think it moves us in the direction of understanding this passage that we're looking at today that essentially says this, 
that while Jesus is the son who was eternally appointed to the office of high priest, despite that being predetermined, he still willingly submitted himself to a process of being qualified to carry it out. Now, do not let this sort of unfamiliar language of this passage allow you to feel distant from what's being said here and the original audience that was being addressed here. Because the author of Hebrews is writing to a first century church that is in the thick of it. They are being tempted to walk away from Christian faith due to persecution and the pressures that are upon them because of their faith and then to return back to the religious roots of Judaism and temple worship. All of the familiar that came with their past, like the priests and the sacrifices and all that came with their, uh, their background in Judaism. And just like we are tempted to revert back to something as well, to turn from Christ and back towards what is familiar, back towards an old habit or an old vice or an old identity or an old relationship or an old religious impulse, all of the old broken patterns that are destined to fail us. And the author is presenting this beautiful vision of how Jesus is better. That's the, the point of the book of Hebrews that we've been studying and took a break from. That Jesus is better. Whatever it is, friend, whatever it is that you are tempted to revert back to, to abandon faith in Christ and go back to that thing, fill in the blank, Jesus is better. We've seen that Jesus is greater than angels. Jesus is better than Adam or any other human or all of humanity as a whole. He's greater than the leader Moses. He's greater than the leader Joshua. Jesus is better than the Sabbath day in that he offers us eternal rest. And as we saw in chapters 4 and 5, that he's the greater high priest, the one who represents us to the Father and welcomes us to come to God in confidence to find grace. And he's better in that he's not in the line of Levitical priests who come and go and die and are replaced, but he's a different kind of priest. This is hinted at in this phrase. He is in the order of Melchizedek. What's that mean? Well, the author of Hebrews is going to say, you're essentially, you're not ready to know what that means yet. I'll pick it back up in chapter 7. But this priest lives and reigns forever. And unlike all the other priests that came before him, when Jesus offers a sacrifice for the sins of the people, it is not for his own sin because he has no sin to atone for. In fact, because he is blameless, he is able to offer himself as the once and for all sacrifice that brings forgiveness for all of our sins, removes the condemnation that is upon us, reconciles us to God, and in one foul soup makes the whole system of sacrifices and priests obsolete. Done. No need to go back. The new has come. And so the author of Hebrews returns to the qualifications of this office, the qualification of being humanity's high priest and mediator. It can't be self-appointed. This wasn't just Jesus, the son, being like, what do I want to do with my life? How do people figure this out at such a young age? What, 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 what? 
I know I'm going to be the high priest and mediator of humanity. That's, that's what I'm going to do when I grow up. No, he had to be appointed from the Father. And he must be qualified in a way that involves both suffering and submission so that he can experience, lots of S's here, solidarity with the humanity that he will lead. So that he can effectively become the source of eternal salvation for all who turn to him in faith. That's what we're talking about here. So we're going to look at this passage under three headings. We're looking at the submission of the Son. We're looking at the school of suffering. And then finally, we're looking at the source of salvation. So let's look first at the submission of the Son. Look with me again in verse 7. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. In the days of his flesh. So what we're talking about here is Jesus' earthly ministry. In the days of his flesh implies that there were previous days and that there are later days. So we know from scripture that Jesus was the eternal pre-incarnate son before he took on flesh and dwelt with us among humanity 2,000 years ago. Jesus has always been. There was not a moment where Jesus started. He has always been. And even now he is fully God and fully human, ascended to the right hand of the Father. He was, he is, and he will always be. But he's narrowing in on a time here, a very specific 30 to 33 years recorded in the Gospels, talking about Jesus' earthly ministry during that time, that time. Jesus offered up prayers, supplications, loud cries, and tears. Now, we know that Jesus prayed all throughout his life. We read about that in the Gospels. And while I'm sure that there were multiple occasions where Jesus prayed intensely to the Father, I think the most obvious reference for what is being talked about here in Hebrews is what we read about in the Gospels when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's the night before his crucifixion. We're told that Jesus' soul is in anguish. And it's not simply because of the physical death that he is about to endure. That's what the movies and the shows are always highlighting. The physical agony of the cross, which I am sure was horrific. But I believe that Jesus' soul is in anguish, not just because of the physical experience that he's about to have, but also because of the spiritual experience, that he is going to experience the full weight of condemnation and just wrath against sin. The punishment of a just God reserved for us because of our rebellion and sin towards him is all about to come down on Jesus. He is about to drink that cup. In fact, that's the way that the scriptures describe the wrath of God. Like in Psalm 75, wrath is described as wine that is swirling and foaming around in a cup that is ready to be poured out on all of the nations. And so in order for this cup to not be poured out on the nations, Jesus must drink it to the very bottom. 
So in preparation for such an intense mission that he's about to embark on, he invites some of his disciples to stay up with him and to pray with him late into the night, which I have a lot of sympathy for. I'm not a night person. I, I would fall asleep too. And maybe you're familiar with the story. Luke 22 captures it. It says this. And after he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, he knelt down and he prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood, falling down to the ground. So, Jesus made his requests known to God. But it's clear here that he also submitted it to God's plans and purposes. Now, this is really important because we're told here that Jesus was heard. In fact, Hebrews tells us that Jesus was heard on account of his reverence. It means reverent submission. But what this does not mean is that Jesus is somehow subordinate to the Father. Jesus is always co-equal and co-eternal with the Father. Instead, what we're seeing here is that Jesus willingly submits his life and willingly submits his requests to the Father. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And while Jesus is heard, the first part of his prayer is not answered. This, this, this creates a very important theological and, I think, practical category for us as we pray. And it's this. You can be heard and not answered. You can be heard and not answered. We know this. The cup was not removed from him. So let me say this plainly. Jesus gets what it's like to be you. All the way down to knowing exactly what it feels like to have prayer unanswered. He knows that feeling when you pray and you don't get the answer that you were intending. He gets you. He knows what it's like. But on the other hand, God did answer his prayer. So this is a bit complex. Because the answer was him providing through the angel, through an angel, strength from heaven to persevere. God gives him the courage to face his own death with confidence. God gives him the confidence and the grace to not back out, but to keep going. To persevere, although he knows exactly what this is going to entail for him. So do you see what the author of Hebrews is doing here? Because he's addressing a people, remember, who are under pressure. He is writing to a very real first century church of of Hebrew converts that are facing persecution, maybe even for some of them facing their own death because of their faith, and now they're being tempted to take the easy way out. They see their fate that is before them, but they see their plan B, their escape clause, returning back to Judaism. And in that very pivotal moment, they're being tempted to walk away. And yet he's showing them You can stay the course. 
Because Jesus stayed the course. You can submit your deepest longings to God. Because Jesus did too. By the way, this is also a reminder that you need Christ-centered teaching when you are in the furnace of affliction. Whether you know it or not, yes, we need comfort. Yes, we need presence. Yes, we need care. But we need to be pointed to Jesus Christ, who is in heaven right now, interceding for those who feel like they're going through hell. Who knows? It says Jesus has heard. God answered his prayer, but just not like we would expect. I remember hearing a story from one of our members. At a time when, when his mom was terminal and dying. And the family was praying for her healing. And, and as he shared, his mom shared with the family her confidence. I know that I'm going to be healed. I know that I'm going to be healed. And this was the follow-up. Whether it's my body being healed now, or going home to be with God in eternity, and being freed from disease and death forever, either way, I know that God is going to answer this prayer. What is that? That's the resolve of Christ. So how was Jesus delivered from death? Because if you know the story of the gospel, <laughs> he dies. Well, here, here's where it even gets more complex. Jesus was delivered from death through death. Jesus would be delivered from death through the resurrection, but, ne but not before submitting to the cross, not before facing his own pain, facing his own suffering, facing death in the face. So two brief applications before we move on to point number two. The first is this. We will be heard when we pray to God because Jesus was heard. You ever wonder why we say that statement at the end of our prayers, in Jesus' name, amen? And sometimes we rush it, right? Like, in Jesus' name, amen? <laughs> Pause. Say it slowly because it matters. We are heard because Jesus is heard, and that is our only confidence. It is not, well, you know, I had a good week, so I'm pretty sure God's going to answer this prayer. And it is not, well, I had a really tough week, so I'm doubting God's going to hear my prayer today. No, we are heard because Jesus was heard. And we are only heard on account of him. That's why we do not need another priest. That's why we do not need a middleman. That's why I would urge you and contend that we should not pray through saints or Mary or anyone else. But pray directly to God. Through a high priest, Jesus Christ. And through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Second application is this. As Jesus reverently submitted to the Father, we must as well. So here's what I want to do. I want to encourage you. Pray big. Pray bold. Pray for miracles. Pray for breakthrough. Pray for the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Get charismatic in your prayer. Go big in your prayer. But submit 
yourself and submit your requests to how God chooses to answer. Because here's the deal. God may spare you from agony. Or God may give you strength and courage and resolve to keep going in the midst of agony. But either way, you will be heard through Jesus Christ. You guys still with me? Secondly, the school of suffering. Verse 8. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. He learned obedience. So what's being described here by the author of Hebrews is that Jesus enrolled, willingly enrolled in the school of suffering. He entered into the apprenticeship of pain. Now in the Bible, knowledge, knowing something has a very broad lexical range. It can be receiving a piece of information like, oh, I knew the answer to that. But it can also mean something extremely experiential, very hands-on. It's like been there done that experience. So it's one thing to know about something. It's another to know from experience. For instance, when my kids were very small and we would give them their dinner plates, some of them, not all of them, I won't pick on which ones, some of them would say, I don't like the taste of that. To which we would respond, you don't even know what it tastes like. Any parents can relate to this? I just know. No, you don't. I just know I'm not going to like that. Right? And, and what we're trying to plead with our children to know is that you don't know until you've tasted it. You don't know until you've experienced it. You don't know until you've actually taken it in. In chapter 2 of Hebrews, we're told that Jesus, in his suffering, that he, quote, tasted death. So, so bear with me here. The all-knowing eternal son of God knows everything, right? He knows everything. There's nothing he doesn't know. And yet at the same time, as the student of suffering, who was one with us in our humanity, Jesus had to learn firsthand. He He had to bite into it. He had to drink down the cup. And what the author of Hebrews is saying here is that Jesus entered into a process of learning by experience. Now, this is not saying that Jesus had to learn obedience because he had previously been disobedient, like he was the heavenly rebellious son who needed to be sent off to the earthly cosmic boarding school to learn a lesson or two so that he could come back and be who he needs to be. No. This is also not saying that Jesus somehow inherently lacked the capacity for obedience and righteousness and needed to be shown how. No. What this is suggesting is a trial by fire. It's one thing to know the right thing. It's one thing to be determined to do the right thing. But it's an entirely different thing to prove it in the midst of affliction and suffering. Jesus was going to prove it. And despite being the eternal son, his position did not spare him from pain. To be the rescuer. To be our representative, he would have to enter in all the way into our human experience. 
including learning to obey the will of God in all of the intense pressure of being human with the aches and all of the pains and all of the temptations and all of the frustrations and all of the agony all the way into death itself. So when we contrast this, when we suffer, we do everything we can do to avoid it. When we even get the hint of suffering come our way, coming our way, we do everything we can do to move in the opposite direction. And then unfortunately, when we're in the midst of suffering, we then spend all of our time and attention and energy trying to get the heck out of it. But Jesus willingly entered it. He learned, meaning he experienced firsthand, the challenge of trusting God and living righteously when everything is against you. You ever feel like just everything is against you in your Christian life? Jesus knows. Jesus knows. And we're told that he passed with flying colors. He graduated summa cum laude. He, he, he graduated, he prevailed. Why? So that we could too. You realize that this all doesn't mean that, you know, like what he accomplished was so that we would get to avoid following in those same steps. No, instead, it was so that we could learn obedience through suffering as well. So that we could pass through the fire of affliction as well and yet emerge more like our Savior Jesus Christ on the other side of it. And in this school, by the way, which all Christians are enrolled, whether you like it or not, there are no honorary degrees. They're not like, oh, we're just going to give you a diploma because you look like you deserve it. No, no shortcut. The psalmist David would say, it was good that I was afflicted that I might learn your statutes. So what's the assumption there? I learned to follow and obey the word of the Lord only after affliction. Imagine how much growth we have forfeited in all of our avoiding of pain. Imagine all of our growth that we have forfeited in all of our resenting of affliction, in all of our doubting God's goodness and his love and his mercy when we are in the midst of it. I love the way that C.H. Spurgeon, or supposedly C.H. Spurgeon said, I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. Have you learned that yet? Have you learned to kiss the wave? To embrace the winds of the storm that is moving you towards the mercy and transformation of Jesus Christ? Are you resisting it? Or are you learning to kiss it today? And what's clear here is status does not spare anyone from the school of suffering. It wasn't so for Jesus. And it won't be the case for us as well. It says, although he was the son. We get this idea that like victorious Christian living. Where I'm living in the abundance of the resurrection. Or I hear things like, well, I'm a, I'm a son of the king. I'm a daughter of the king. We, we get this notion that that title of son or daughter means that we can avoid trials now. 
That if we just believe it enough, if we just pray against it enough, if we just name it and claim it enough, or we rebuke the pain, or we rebuke the suffering, or we rebuke the sickness in Jesus' name, that we can live without pain or sickness or struggle or death. Although he was the son. That was not true for Jesus, and it certainly won't be true for us. Being a child of God does not mean you get to skip the process. Being a child of God means you enter into it. But being a child of God also means you enter into it with the mercy and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The same spirit that empowered Christ to prevail will empower you to prevail as well. The Apostle Paul would write to the Romans church in chapter 8, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Do not forget that. You are a son of the king. You are a daughter of the king. And if children then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, here's the caveat, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. First a cross, then a crown, and not the other way around. Let's look finally at the source of salvation, verse 9. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Now, this is actually something we covered uh, earlier in Hebrews. Remember, Jesus being made perfect through suffering is not a moral thing, okay? Jesus is always without sin. Jesus is always perfect in that regard. There has been and never will be any area for Jesus to need to improve morally and in his holiness. But being made perfect has to do with completion, fulfillment. So the picture is this, that Jesus fulfilled God's purposes for his life. Jesus completed the task. Jesus experienced everything that he was intended to experience. Image, uh, picture it this way. He drank the cup to the bottom in order to fulfill his mission to save. He drained it to fill it, made perfect through suffering. I've shared this illustration before, and so whenever I repeat things, which is going to happen after a decade of ministry here, I'm going to tell you I've already given you this illustration, but there is a point I want to point out that I haven't before. In the half-blood prince, okay, <laughs> yeah, 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 okay, Harry Potter and Dumbledore venture into a dark cave in order to find one of the keys to defeating evil incarnate Voldemort himself. They come to the inner portion of this cave and they journey across on a small boat into the middle of this underground lake and there on this tiny island they come to a stone basin. And within this stone basin is the key but below this mysterious potion called the potion of despair. And the key to defeating their enemy, the key to saving all the people is there at the bottom but they cannot just reach for it. And so what Dumbledore does is he determines that he's got to drink the potion all the way down to get to it. It is vital I drink it, he says. And here's the point. He reminds Harry. Actually, this is, I believe, his second time he reminds Harry of the one condition upon which he could come with him. You must do everything that I ask of you. 
You must do everything I tell you. And then he says, you have to ensure that no matter how much agony that you see me experience, that I drink it to the very bottom. And this illustration gives us two helpful things here that we're seeing in Hebrews. The first is that it shows us the work of Jesus. The, the Dumbledore character who steps into unimaginable pain to save us. That he is the hope of humanity. Jesus is the source of salvation. In fact, the word translated here, cause, means the originator. It is found in no one else and no other place but in Christ alone, the source of eternal salvation. The second thing is this. Obedience is crucial. And I've seen this movie a ton of times, but for whatever reason, watching it with my kids over the Christmas break, and by watching it, I mean watching half of it until I fell asleep. But seeing this part, this, this phrase stood out to me. And what stood out to me was the reminder that the one condition is that Harry has to do everything that Dumbledore tells him to do. And likewise, there is a condition attached here. I mean, we can't ignore this, uh, this phrase. Look at me again in verse 9. He became the source of eternal salvation to all who what? Obey him. So the condition is obedience. So let's sit in the tension for just a second. The condition for salvation is obedience. What do we do with that? Because if you're raised in gospel-centered Christianity, all the alarms are going off. You're like, ah, how are you going to solve that one there, preacher? Because we know that salvation is based on nothing that we do, but everything that Jesus has done for us. Our salvation is not a works-based righteousness. It's a Christ-based righteousness. But according to Hebrews, it's right here. Salvation is only available to those who do obey. And I believe the answer is found in this office that Jesus fulfills as priest. Remember, Jesus right now is at the right hand of the Father representing his people. C.H. Spurgeon put it this way. When we believe in Christ by faith, we receive our justification. As the merit of his blood takes away our sin. Now listen to these words. So the merit of his obedience is imputed to us for righteousness. We are considered as soon as we believe as though the works of Christ are our works. God looks upon us as though the perfect obedience had been performed by ourselves. God considers us as though we were Christ. Looks upon us as though his life had been our life and accepts, blesses, and rewards us as though all that he did had been done by us, his believing people. So let me ask you a question. When you stand before God, and you will, when you stand before God and you give an account for your life, whose record of obedience do you want God considering in that moment? Yours? Or Jesus's. What you have, or probably more accurate, what you have not done in terms of obedience, 
of what Jesus has accomplished for you? That's the question beneath the gospel that you need to answer. And as much as we may think that, oh, well, if we receive this perfect record of righteousness, isn't that going to just enable us to now live however we want without any regard to our actions? Isn't that going to take away any sort of motivation to now obey God? Isn't it just going to cause us to kind of cast off restraint and have no concern for obeying God? Actually, the opposite is true. As William Cowper once put it, to see the law by Christ fulfilled, to hear his pardoning voice, can change a slave into a child and duty into choice. Obedience into delight. In have to, into get to. So Jesus reverently submitted to the wishes of the Father's plan to enable you and me to do the very same. And so here's the application. You must submit to him. Trust your prayers. Trust your desires. Trust your wishes. Trust your future. Your everything to him. You can trust him. It also means that he persevered in suffering to give you the grace to persevere as well. So here's the application. Stay the course. Don't give up now. Don't turn back when it gets difficult. Because the challenge and the affliction is actually producing something in you right now that you could never imagine. Finally, Jesus was obedient so that you could be obedient as well. Friend, I'm going to shoot straight with you. No more compromising. No more justifying. No more settling. No more just kind of slipping things under the rug. No more excuses. Do all that God has said to do by the grace and the working of the Holy Spirit within you. Amen? Let's respond. Father, we thank you.